Welcome to OncoPharm. I'm your host, John Bazaar. I am a professor of pharmacy practice here and supporting sponsor of OncoPharm, Bill Gatton College of Pharmacy at East Tennessee State University. Today, by listener request, we are doing a Foundations of OncoPharm episode on carfilzomib or kyprolis. Uh, so why do carfilzomib instead of bortezomib? Because I was asked to do carfilzomib before I was asked to do bortezomib. And we'll talk about bortezomib as we go along. So, so these are our proteasome inhibitors. Um, so let's talk about the proteasome pathway. So ubiquitin and, and ubiquitinization, easy for me to say. So ubiquitin is like a flag that cells plant on proteins that need to be destroyed. Uh, and there can be uh, usually more ubiquitin attached to proteins, proteins that, that need to be destroyed uh, more urgently. And the proteasome is the, the, uh, the enzyme that destroys these proteins. So think of the proteasome as the garbage disposal of the cell for eliminating protein uh, that it's worn out. It's welcome because of, say, post-transcriptional changes uh, and just needs to go or just, you know, just an old protein needs to go. Maybe it's a protein that shouldn't be there in the first place and it needs to go. Uh, so what cancer cell uh, makes a whole bunch of protein and basically is just a protein factory? Multiple myeloma cells, which is the primary role of proteasome inhibitors. So as these myeloma cells are cranking out their IgG or IgA uh, junk antibody, uh, they, ap- they appear to be highly sensitive to proteasome inhibition, much more so than other cancer cells. Uh, so uh, that is why we see uh, these drugs used here. So as you inhibit that proteasome activity, those proteins build up uh, inside the the myeloma cell, uh, eventually uh, shutting down uh, vital cell processes, leading to apoptosis. The exact mechanism is unknown, but uh, NF-kappa-beta is hypothesized to have a a big role there. So we're going to talk mostly about carfilzomib, and we got to kind of compare it to bortezomib, sorry, exazomib, no no discussion of your oral... uh, uh, dosing uh, today. So bortezomib, as you maybe could guess by its BOR origin, is a boronic acid derivative, whereas carfilzomib is a peptide epoxy ketone. Um, and, and this is important. So the peptide carboxy ke- epoxy ketones like carfilzomib are more selective for the proteasome in cancer cells, uh, as opposed to proteasomes in all other cells in the body. So the the exact nature of the proteasome is different in myeloma cells than, say, in other cells in your body. Um, bortezomib irreversible, or sorry, bortezomib reversibly inhibits the proteasome for like up to 72 hours, which is where the bortezomib day one, day four, day eight, day 11, it kind of works out to every 72 hours if you didn't have weekends involved. Um, whereas uh, carfilzomib is irreversible inhibition of, of uh, the proteasome, which is why you see uh, days one and two of a, uh, you know, each week or even just weekly administration of carfilzomib. seems to be due to its irreversible, or sorry, it's, yeah, it's irreversible inhibition of the proteasome. So, so in theory, carfilzomib is maybe a little bit better of a proteasome inhibitor. Now, we will see that's not necessarily the case. And we'll point out those differences as we go along as, as they're notable, and kind of in the middle, we'll talk about the role of carfilzomib currently in treating multiple myeloma. Uh, now, when we talk dosing here, this is when things get hairy. So it, for me, it's easiest to go back through um, kind of the history of this. And we'll notice a recurring theme when we talk about the dosing of carfilzomib. It has come up previously on this podcast, whether it was uh, fulvestrant, 
um, or uh, oh, so many other drugs we've talked about, uh, is that the optimal dosing sometimes changes over time and, and evolves as we figure out what is the best dose to use. And I think that's food for accelerate approval thinking um, as more and more drugs come out faster and faster today is how confident we are in the drugs that we're the doses of the drugs we're given uh, when it's been studied 100 patients how accurate those are going forward so if we start with kind of the first you know like phase 1a study the first phase one study uh, the dose was 20 milligrams per squared IV as a bolus so maybe say over 10 minutes uh, given daily for five days of a 14-day cycle uh, and then they gave uh, 20 milligrams per meter squared on days one and two, days eight and nine, days 15 and 16 of a 28-day cycle. And that's kind of the first dosing regimen that we got was this days, like think of it, Monday, Tuesday of week one, Monday, Tuesday of week two, Monday, Tuesday of week three, nothing on week four, and then get back to uh, the dosing again. Um, and in, in that study of the, the, tw- the bi-weekly dosing, there was no um, maximum tolerated dose. Um, the main toxicity I saw were some hematologic toxicity, some temporary or transient, as they called it, increases in serum creatinine and BUN, um, but no neuropathy, despite the fact that it was studied in, in patients who had already had peripheral neuropathy from, from bortezomib. Uh, so this takes us to the, the phase two study, where they did 20 milligrams per meter squared twice weekly for the first cycle. There was a protocol amendment based on some other stuff that came out, and then they went to 27 uh, after uh, cycle one, and in fact, the, some of the dosing in the PI now is 20 milligrams per squared week one, and then 27 bi-weekly week, week two. So that comes from this phase two study where there was actually a protocol amendment and why that's there. And that lower dose um, initially helps uh, potentially mitigate the severity of infusion reactions, maybe tumor lysis syndrome, and some of the toxicities uh, being so severe that we'll talk about. So in that phase two study, uh, you know, um, there was less than 1% grade 3 peripheral neuropathy, even though 8 out of 10 had peripheral neuropathy at baseline from prior bortezomib. Now, this is, it's almost like they ignored some of the animal studies or, or the, they didn't get all the results from the animal studies uh, right away. So in animal studies, the dose-limiting toxicity, and we will hear this come out in our the warnings precautions, the label for carfilzomib or kyprolis. In animal, the dose-limiting toxicities were um, bone marrow toxicity, uh, renal toxicity, pulmonary toxicity, and cardiovascular toxicity. Uh, but they noticed in these animal studies that instead of giving it over 10 minutes or bolus, that if you gave it over 30 minutes, there was less toxicity. Uh, and they noticed that obviously the, the concentration at the maximum time, the max, the C-max was lower, but there were similar levels of proteasm inhibition and less death in these animals. Given carfilzomib over 10 minutes to animals, 44% of them died. If you gave it over 30 minutes, there was none of them died. Um, this should not have been shocking, whether it's zoledronic acid, giving it over 5 minutes versus 15 minutes, in that case, less nephrotoxicity. Same thing with cisplatin, give it over longer, less nephrotoxicity. Vancomycin, uh, give it over a longer time, less you know of those infusion reactions. So this is not a new thing that if you slow down the rate of drug delivery, you're going to decrease the Cmax, the maximum concentration. And a lot of peaks are associated with Cmax the highest peak concentration in the blood at the time, because that'll be the highest peak concentration in the cells as well. Um, and there are other toxicities that are associated with duration of treatment. So you think of uh, cardiomyopathy with anthracycline. That's a duration of uh, a, a cumulative dose and, and duration of exposure sort of toxicity, but certainly not crazy. In fact, well, you know, this would be the smart thing to do is to think about uh, giving it over longer per time. So now we get to a, another 
uh, phase two study using a 30-minute infusion, uh, and they were actually able to get up to uh, 56 milligrams per squared uh, biweekly uh, as a maximum tolerate dose. And this was associated with better response rate and you know similar levels or, or decreased levels of proteasome activity. So giving a higher dose, you know, worked better. Uh, there was, uh, and this is kind of what we see now in in the PIEs is this biweekly dosing. Uh, of 56 uh, after that first dose uh, of 20 milligrams per meter squared. Um, there was a, a phase one study called the Champion One study where they actually went up to 88 milligrams per meter squared. And at that dose, they did have uh, a dose limiting toxicity of grade three dyspnea, um, uh, as well as a renal AKI. Um, so the, the dose limiting tox, or the, sorry, the maximum tolerance dose in Champion One, or in, in the follow-up study, the arrow study was 70 milligrams weekly. Now that, that 70 milligrams weekly dose also showed an increased progression-free survival, increased overall response rate compared to a lower dose of biweekly carfilzomib. However, that was just carfilzomib plus dex. So part of the reason we see such a different dosing, you know, there's the um, there's the the original dose of of carfilzomib uh, that is the the 20 milligrams per meter squared uh, on week one, and then 27. And then we, uh, twice weekly, right? So days 1, 2, 8, 9, 15, 16. And again, think of those as Monday, Tuesday. Monday, Tuesday, Monday, Tuesday is the easiest way to think about that. We've got the 70 milligram per meter squared weekly dose, but that has just been studied with dexamethasone. And then from a, uh, from a label standpoint, then we have the, the 56 milligram per meter squared uh, after that, uh, that 20 milligram per meter squared first dose uh, that, is, that is twice weekly. And again, those higher doses above 27 milligrams per square, those are 10-minute infusions. These 56 milligrams per square twice weekly is a 30-minute infusion. Um, and the uh, 70 milligrams per square weekly is also a 30-minute infusion. So you do need a longer duration of infusion to, to push these doses higher. So that's part of the reason we have all these different doses is as the drug was studied, we learned uh, from animal studies and from, you know, phase two studies and, and human gen and dose finding studies that giving uh, over a longer period of time was safer. And you could push higher doses uh, doing it weekly. You also have to consider the other drugs that are given with this and the toxicity and tolerability. So, for example, that, that high 70 milligram per dose weekly was just studied in combination with dexamethasone, whereas that 56 milligram per meter squared is kind of the highest dose. And again, that's twice weekly studied with other drugs like daratumab and dex or, or len uh, and dex. So the dosing can be a little bit all over the place there, and that is obviously confusing uh, for for everyone involved, but the doses here do matter. I also want to point out that in the package answer, they do state uh, that patients with a BSA above 2.2, that their dose should be capped based on a BSA calculation of 2.2. Okay, so we've already alluded to where we use carfilzomib or cryprolos, which is primarily in multiple myeloma um, patients. Um, bortezomib uh, has labeled indications for, in addition to myeloma, also mantle cell lymphoma. Off-label uses have been reported for uh, antibody-mediated uh, organ rejection. Makes sense if, if you've got a, somebody else's kidney and it's being rejected because of antibody production, you can shut down those plasma cells with bortezomib, just like you're shutting down the aberrant plasma cells in myeloma with a proteasome inhibitor. Uh, Velcade has some data in mycosis fungoides, follicular lymphoma, uh, peripheral T-cell lymphomas, uh, light-chain amyloidosis makes a lot of sense, and then Waldenstrom's macroglobinemia, which has a, a different name now that I can't remember off the top of my head. Um, now, 
Um, this is probably a good time to talk about the endurance trial uh, as we consider the uses of uh, carfilzomib, primarily for myeloma. So endurance was a large study published, I think, last year, or 2020, I think. Um, one of the largest myeloma studies published in the first-line setting, transplant-eligible patients were randomized either, um, I hate the names here because they're like brand names, KRD, which is uh, Kyprolis, and Revlimid Dex, so Carfilzomib, Len, and Dex, versus VRD, Velcade, Revlimid Dex. So um, basically we're looking at a Carfilzomib upfront regimen as a triplet versus a Bortezomib upfront regimen as a triplet. And the, the long and short of this is there was no difference in progression-free survival between uh, the arms. And there was more toxicity in the carfilzomib arm, as, as we'll get to. Uh, and so uh, there was thinking at the time, even though carfilzomib is a more potent and a more selective proteasome inhibitor, uh, that it would, um, and has some activity, even in people who are bortezomib refractory, that uh, it might beat bortezomib. This was not the case. And of course, more toxicity with carfilzomib. So to this day, our favorite guidelines, the category one recommendation, the preferred thing is bortezomib, lilidomide, and dex upfront. Carfilzomib is an other recommended regimen often reserved in the second line setting. One thing to point out about endurance, they did twice weekly dosing of, of carfilzomib at 36 milligrams per year squared, so not as high as the 56 or the 70 weekly. So I was a little bit surprised that there's not been another study uh, basically doing weekly uh, high-dose uh, carfilzomib with this since the high-dose carfilzomib study weekly uh, did show some better outcomes compared to twice-weekly carfilzomib at uh, lower dose. So a little surprising we haven't seen that there, but in the long run, probably not going to make uh, a ton of difference. I'll also point out that uh, in some of the recent studies, like say the MASTER uh, trial, and I think Manhattan did this, uh, these are some uh, pilot trials of uh, you know quadruple red you know quad regimens adding dara up front like master for example i know because one of the doctors i worked with in training was one of the pis on that one of the investigators um, master was looking at dara tumab uh, carfilzomib uh, little amount of index and um, basically looking at the feasibility of mrd then residual disease guided or adaptive treatment and the feasibility of that they used a dose of carfilzomib of 56 milligrams per square weekly. So the dosing here in combination with all the drugs we have to play with myeloma is, is fluid, but there are some general trends, which is that lower dose initially, uh, and then titrating up and, and uh, the thinking that we can tolerate higher individual doses giving carfilzomib weekly versus twice weekly. And patients probably would, you know, do better with the weekly approach, uh, at least from a convenience standpoint, certainly. Okay, let's talk about the administration of this drug. It's IV, Whereas bortezomib is given sub-Q, since we're not doing a foundation of the bortezomib episode, I do need to point out bortezomib originally was IV, you know, the day 1, 4, 8, 11 regimen. You could do weekly bortezomib as well. A lot of folks consider that just as, as good. Um, now, there was a, a large trial, a pivotal trial in pharmacokinetics uh, for bortezomib that showed that subcutaneous bortezomib had a much lower Cmax, but a similar AUC or total drug exposure, AUC area under the curve, so how much drug the patient is exposed to over time. That was similar with bortezomib giving sub-Q or IV with a lot less neuropathy. So we all give bortezomib sub-Q these days. Carfilzomib is IV. Uh, that dexmethasone that is in the regimen it not, is not just there to treat myeloma. It is also a premedication that should be given 30 minutes to four hours before a dose of carfilzomib to help with the infusion reactions, along with 250 to 500 mils of IV fluids before cycle one uh, to, to help minimize the risk of renal toxicity and potentially tumor lysis syndrome. We don't think about that a lot with 
with myeloma, but has been seen with carfilzomib. And to, quote, consider antiviral prophylaxis with carfilzomib, uh, we know that proteasome inhibitors do increase the risk of things like herpes virus reactivations. This comes from, I think the first time this came out was the VISTA study, which was melphalan and uh, bortezomib and prednisone versus just melphalan and prednisone, which at the time was the standard of care for, every, for anybody who was not a transplant candidate. Um, and uh, there were higher rate, much higher rates of herpes virus reactivation in the bortezomib arm than in just the melphalan prednisone. And this was a phase three study, and it took us a while to figure out this risk of, of herpes virus reactivation with bortezomib. And now a lot of senders kind of just blindly put everybody on a cyclovir or valacyclovir uh, with myeloma. Okay, uh, so that's the, the infusion there, 30-minute infusion uh, for those higher doses above 27 milligrams per year squared. If you're just doing that 20, 27, the initial, the first dosing, like if you, you work at a community center that hasn't updated, they're like... Their, their protocols or their order sheets or their epic databases in years, you know, and you're doing 10 milligrams of, of carfilzomib, uh, there, are, there are higher doses that you can do uh, that are 30-minute infusions. From a PKPD, pharmacodynamic, pharmacodynamic standpoint, um, I'll point out that the drug has a short half-life, less than one hour uh, over that first day there. The metabolism is mostly not in the liver. This is, recall, a peptide epoxy ketone, so most of the metabolism is a peptidase cleavage and epoxide hydrolysis, so non-hepatic. However, there is still a 50% increase in, in drug exposure in those with moderate or hepatic impairment. Those folks should get a 25% dose reduction uh, when first starting. Uh, folks on, on dialysis, in-stage renal disease, more than, um, they get a 33% increase in drug exposure, uh, but no dose, uh, no dose adjustment is required. The drug is dialyzable, so in those folks, you do need to give carfilzomib after dialysis. All right, so here we get to the big section, the warnings, precautions. So in the FDA label, the package insert for this drug, the prescribing information, you know they have tables comparing the toxicity of, of this versus that, but they also call special attention to, to uh, certain toxicities. These are warnings, precautions. The highest level you can have is a boxed warning, a black box warning. There are none of those with carfilzomib, but there are 17 warnings, precautions. We're going to go through those. There are only 11 with bortezomib. Uh, which says something there. So the first one they mentioned is cardiac. And these are kind of in order of severity uh, and, and prevalence. So 8% of folks had cardiac failure events, which could be uh, heart failure, pulmonary edema, a decrease in ejection fraction, cardiomyopathy, uh, heart attacks. Uh, and these, these risks go up uh, above the age of 5. And this is a risk that is greater with carfilzomib than with bortezomib. There's also a risk of acute renal failure, about 9%. Uh, and fatal renal failure, uh, that risk goes up as renal function goes down point out again, there is no dose reduction empirically for renal dysfunction, even for end-stage renal disease with carfilzomib. So this is something that is monitored, serum creatinine, and there are dose reductions. And this is a, an added risk over bortezomib that is seen with carfilzomib. Uh, I mentioned that you can see tumor lysis syndrome with carfilzomib, and that is why we give fluids before that first uh, cycle, 250 to 500 mils. Again, you got to consider what the heart can handle for these older patients primarily with multiple myeloma. Uh, there is a, a pulmonary toxicity uh, warning for ARDS was seen in 2%, acute respiratory distress syndrome. Remember, uh, dyspnea, trouble breathing, was a dose-limiting toxicity in some of the phase one studies. Pulmonary hypertension in 2% and dyspnea in 25%, 4% of that, uh, uh, or 4% total incidence of grade three dyspnea. Hypertension uh, can be seen, 17% uh, in a KRD regimen versus 9% without carfilzomib, 34%. Uh, with uh, um, carfilzomib uh, dex versus 11% 11 11 with 
bortezomib decks. So this is very much a carfilzomib toxicity as opposed to bortezomib. This hypertension and the PI lets us know that we need to optimize their blood pressure before treatment, which we probably were trying to do in the first place. Uh, Thromboprophylaxis is needed if you give this with dex, which you're going to, or lendex, which you're given dex, or dera plus dex. Uh, just to give you uh, some insight in the Manhattan study, which was from Sloan Kettering, I believe, since the name was Manhattan, that, that's what my memory's telling me. This was a quad study uh, using, um, I think they did 56 weekly of Carfilzman, but I don't remember off the top of my head. But they used a DOAC prophylactically for that as opposed to just aspirin uh, because there is a greater risk of thromboembolic uh, events with carfilzomib as opposed to bortezomib. So in that VRD regimen that everyone uses first line for the most part, you put those folks, you use the, um, you know, you look at the, the scales for who should maybe just get 81 milligrams of aspirin versus who needs um, uh, something more like an anticoagulant actually. Um, you know, you do see more thrombo. Um, uh, venous thromboembolic events with carfilzomib as opposed to bortezomib, where most of the risk in the bortezomib-containing regimens are from the linalamide and the dex. Uh, infusion reactions can be life-threatening with carfilzomib, uh, and they're the standard, typical symptoms we think about, fever, chills, myalgias, uh, drop in blood pressure, shortness of breath. Um, you know, th this is the concerning thing, though, with carfilzomib. It can be immediate, or it could be delayed up to, you know, hours later, up to 24 hours later, the PI says. Uh, you can see hemorrhage. You can see thrombocytopenia. This is really uh, kind of a unique toxicity here to both carfilzomib and bortezomib. Uh, the, you know, the nadir, the lowest point, or the nadir, the lowest point of the platelet counts for carfilzomib is going to be days 8 to 15. And again, we're still giving carfilzomib on day 15 or 16 in these cycles. Uh, so, you know, it this nadir is similar to what is seen with bortezomib. It is not due to bone marrow suppression. And if you make, a, I think, a reasonable assumption that it's the same mechanism as seen with bortezomib, it is due to the, the, the drug inhibiting proplatelet formation, which is the step uh, in the platelet production pathway between megakaryocytes and actual platelets. So megakaryocytes turn into proplatelets, and those proplatelets turn into platelets. So it's like the last step before the platelets are actually created, uh, which is why the thrombocytopenia we see with bortezomib and carfilzomib happens very quickly, but also recovers very quickly because you don't wait for marrow recovery. As soon as the drug's out of the body, the megakaryocytes uh, that are getting to that proplatelet stage go on normally to develop into proplatelets and then subsequently into their final differentiation path uh, into platelets. Uh, there are some hepatic failure events reported, thrombotic microangiopathies, so TTP or HUS sort of events, thrombotic thrombocytopenia prepare or hemolytic uremic syndrome, uh, posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome, aka PRESS, uh, progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy, PML. Um, there's actually a boxed warning for increased toxicity with melphalan. Um, which I didn't do this, but if because I ran out of time, but because it took me forever going through all the dosing of, of carfilzomib, but where are they all the, the origins of these, the origin story, you know, it's like the Marvel universe or something. Um, anyway, the fact that there's a special tox statement for increased toxicity with melphalan tells you that there was a study and it didn't go well with melphalan, and then embryofetal toxicity, as you might expect. So there are 17 of those with carfilzomib compared to only 11 with bortezomib. What's in bortezomib as far as warnings, precautions that aren't with carfilzomib. The big one, the obvious one, is peripheral neuropathy. Uh, there's also hypotension with bortezomib. I had not seen this in the PI, but it's something I've seen clinically for years, and I always assumed 
that this was a form of autonomic peripheral neuropathy because bortezomib causes such bad peripheral neuropathy that it can also cause neuropathy of the autonomic nervous system. And when people go from sitting to standing, they get orthostatic. Because we've seen this a lot, a lot of orthostatic hypotension over the years with our patients. Now that orthostatic hypotension as an autonomic neuropathy is was my assumption, but there is actually a warning and precaution statement in the Velcade PI about hypotension. Um, there's also in, in the Velcade PI a, a warning about thrombotic microangiopathies as well, uh, as with carfilzomib. So that's carfilzomib, a drug that is, um, you know, right now for most places is going to be, you know, if you look at the guidelines, is going to be a drug you reserve for people after they progress following uh, bortezomib, Lindex, uh, and their transplant. Um, but, you know, there's certainly going to be some use uh, in the upfront setting uh, with the weekly dosing and a drug that, you know, I think everyone's going to see, you know, as they progress through their myeloma treatments. It's a disease that is largely considered incurable by the non-myeloma experts. Um, and uh, so for most people, you know, cure is not the goal. So you want them to live as long and as healthy as they can. Um, and certainly carfilzomib has some scary toxicity profiles. I had a, a former student years ago. This drug was approved in 2012, and we're still kind of figuring out the dose a decade later. Many years ago, um, student contacted me and said, hey, we gave carfilzomib to somebody, and like the next day they died. And like, and he, you know, was telling me kind of what they did. So it sounds like, you know, you gave the fluids, you did what you were supposed to. It's kind of scary. Uh, and these toxicities, um, you know, uh, the, the cardiac and renal toxicities, uh, having greater risk in the elderly, and we have a disease of the elderly, you know, I think does lead to a reasonable question that should be should be studied. It, you know, if these folks are going to live for years with myeloma, the safest time to give them carfilzomib may be up front uh, when when they are when they are younger. Uh, I also did a, a fair amount of research into the causes of the infusion reactions, the cardiac toxicity, and the renal toxicity, and the pulmonary toxicity, and why it's different. Um, and greater compared to bortezomib and couldn't find a lot of good answers into that. So I think there's still a lot about carfilzomib that uh, is yet uh, to be elucidated or learned. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll see more of that. And as that data were to come out, I certainly would be interested in sharing that on the podcast. So that's, uh, that's carfilzomib and a little bit about bortezomib. Um, thank you for listening to Onco Farm. You can follow me uh, on Twitter at FarmDeepNip and follow the podcast on both Instagram and Twitter uh, at Onco Farm Pod. And until I talk to you again, remember, doses matter.